ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com slash ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Vetify. And as usual, we have several interesting topics to get into, uh, pretty meaty topics, actually which makes Dave the perfect guest. Uh, so first, the SEC and uh, Gary Gensler continue pushing a very aggressive regulatory agenda, at least in my opinion. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I think we'd all agree there were some uh, things that needed cleaning up. If you look back to 2020 and 2021 with some of the uh, shenanigans that went on in crypto and with SPACs and some of the other stuff, but SEC Chair Gary Gensler is taking no prisoners with his regulatory approach. And last week, there were two rules. So one that was adopted and one that was proposed that I think could impact a lot of listeners of this podcast. So we'll tell you about those rules. And then we'll also get into some other topics, including Charles Schwab attempting to democratize the uh, proxy voting process by polling investors on their preferences. And we'll also touch on the state of uh, non-transparent ETFs. Remember those? They're still around. Now, also joining me this week will be Alexandra wilson Elizondo, head of multi-asset funds and models portfolio management at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We're going to discuss a topic that I always find intriguing, which is model portfolios, uh, ETF model portfolios in particular. So she's going to walk us through how Goldman views the world on these and why advisors should consider them. And then we'll also talk markets. Uh, we'll find out how Goldman is allocating within their model portfolios, given everything we've seen this year. And then to close this week, another great guest. I'll be joined by Nick Elward, head of institutional product and ETFs at Natixis Investment Managers, who's a $1 trillion plus asset manager, by the way. And they currently offer four ETFs, three of which are using that uh, non or semi-transparent ETF structure. So you'll get to hear from both Dave Nodig and an asset manager actually using this structure, uh, which Natixis leverages the 
New York Stock Exchange's proxy portfolio methodology. So we'll discuss that and introduce you to those Ford and Texas ETFs. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Dave Nottig. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, great having you back on the uh, podcast. How have you been? I've been great. I've been great. We've got a lot to talk about today. I'm excited. We do. Like I said, some uh, very meaty topics. And I, I guess a good place to start, you heard my comments there at the top. Do you agree that SEC Chair Gary Gensler is pursuing an aggressive regulatory agenda, or is that just me? Uh, no, there's definitely a lot. I think uh, what's what's unique is that over the last couple of years, a lot of this has impacted the part of the industry we pay attention to, Nate, right? So everything, it, frankly, since the ETF rule passed a couple of years ago, We've seen a steady drip of things that affect how products are sold, how advisors do their business, how things are advertised and marketed, uh, even to some extent how we calculate the internal value at risk around different derivatives contracts. There's been a lot. Uh, none of it's super surprising. A lot of this has been well broadcast in advance. Um, I, I actually think my, my big issue right now would be we've got a lot of activity going on around things that frankly don't seem like such a big deal to me. And yet still no Bitcoin ETF, <laughs> or at least no no Bitcoin ETF clarity, I should say. You're trying to get me going here first thing in the morning. And maybe that's what uh, maybe that's why I'm colored a little bit here, right, or, or, or biased in that, you know, I think Gensler came in and the assumption was that he was going to embrace crypto and, and really push a, uh, a, you know, an open forward thinking agenda. And obviously it's gone the other way here. But uh, it, just in general, I think he's caught some people off guard with just how fast he's moving on a number of different fronts. I, I, it's been pretty amazing from my perspective. Now, of course, fast doesn't always mean good. And maybe we'll get into that on the, the couple of rules that we'll talk about here. But man, he's running a tight regulatory ship, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I, none of this surprised me that much. I mean, as somebody who's been following SEC filings for my entire career, um, I, I'd be surprised if the pace of rulemaking was technically more than it had been in the past. Again, I think the difference is this is all happening in our sandbox, Nate, uh, as opposed to regulating, you know, derivatives contracts we've never heard of or sales practices we thought were gone a long time ago. This is bread and butter regulation of how the business is working day to day. Okay, so let's start with this new rule that was proposed last week, which this is right in my sandbox. And honestly, this one, yep. uh, it scares me a little. I know we had Halloween yesterday, but this one may uh, continue frightening some advisors for a while. And in a nutshell, this proposed rule would, quote, prohibit registered investment advisors from outsourcing certain services and functions without conducting due diligence in monitoring of the service providers. So some listeners may ask, well, uh, what are those services? So the SEC noted these may include providing investment guidelines, portfolio management, models related to investment advice, which, of course, I'll be talking uh, models later with Goldman Sachs. Uh, they noted indexes, uh, trading services or software, uh, among other things. And 
Dave, look, we have a lot of advisors who listen to this podcast, and so I thought this was important to discuss, uh, just the potential implications. So what did you make of this proposed rule overall? Uh, it's the Compliance Officer Full Employment Act of 2022. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it is, right? It's, look, the, the problem with this is that it is very disproportional in terms of how it affects different advisors' practices. One of the reasons we've had kind of this resurgence or maybe golden age of financial advice in this country where we've got, you know, frankly, just a ton of younger Gen X and millennial folks out there running really interesting and fun and, and dynamic advisory practices, uh, you know, targeting often like underserved affinity groups or parts of the market that other folks haven't focused on, or maybe strategies other people haven't brought to the traditional FA market for, you know, decades all of those folks rely on the fact that it is relatively easy, and I say easy with air quotes around it, to be a small RAA these days. I don't need to tell you that, right? There are enough partners you can work with that will handle your back office, that will help you outsource compliance, or will hand you a set of tools to do risk analysis for new customers, or onboarding, or nudging them to get stuff. I mean, there's just a a cavalcade of these. If you go to like the Kitsi site and you look at the number of advisor tech platforms out there, it's in the hundreds. Every single one of those is most likely going to fall under the definition that the SEC has put here as a covered outsourced partner. What that really means is that if this passed, and again, we should point out this is just proposed rulemaking. Now we get to all yell at the SEC about why they're wrong. So everybody, please go fill out your comment letters. Um, you know, if this passed, it means that, you know, the, the small RAA down the street, you know, where she's got three or four people working for her and she's the primary breadwinner on that, that practice, it's brutal because the requirements here for both due diligence and even more to the point, monitoring, going back and assessing again whether or not this provider who's just doing CRM for you but manages to check one box whether their security protocols are updated every year. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty invasive and intrusive uh, piece of rulemaking. And I, if you can't tell, I'm really not a fan. Well, as you may guess, I'm in your camp as well. And, you know, as I thought about this, I guess I just view many of the things that an advisor may outsource. You know, this is under the advisor's umbrella overall in terms of their responsibility to make sure um, the yeah. service providers that they're working with are doing what they're supposed to do. And this just feels like it adds a whole nother layer of uh, bureaucracy to the process. It's more documentation and policies and procedures. It just seems unnecessary. And so, like, I'll give you the example of model portfolios. Of course, I'm talking about that uh, this week. If you're a fiduciary advisor, you already have an obligation to make sure they're in your client's best interest, right? It doesn't matter whether yeah. you're managing portfolios in-house or you outsource them. It doesn't matter what you do. You already have a certain uh, standard of care. And, and again, this just seems to add bureaucracy to the process. The, the other yeah, thing, I, I, go ahead, yeah. I was going to say, I think what they're after here are some narrow use cases. First of all, we need to remember that the phrase advisor covers a whole lot of people who are not just in the business of providing financial advice to individual clients, right? Technically, every fund company is also an advisor, right? They have their own form ADV they fill out. So, so where it gets a little muddy here is some of the examples they use are, for instance, when people relied on BNY's bogus NAV calculations. Remember that hiccup, know. you know, however many years ago where, you know, hundreds of funds printed the wrong NAV because there was a hiccup at BNY's uh, fund accounting shop? 
maybe it was probably dozens, not hundreds. I'm probably exaggerating. They use that as an example. Obviously, that is an irrelevant example to a financial advisor on the street doing the job, but it's a very relevant example if, in fact, you are a fund. So I feel like there's several things that got mashed together here. I'm hopeful that in the comments process, we can tease apart the actual business of being an FA and, and maybe exclude most of that because, as you said, you're already a fiduciary. You're kind of on the hook if you screwed that up no matter what. Uh, and put that aside to some of the other activities that, quote, unquote, advisors do, which includes advising funds. And that's when I think this gets actually to be a real issue. Well, I'll just say even for activities, let's say you and I both agree that they are relevant. Um, I don't think advisors are outsourcing um, certain functions as a way to do unscrupulous things and try to deceive clients, no. right? Like out of all the areas in the market where there are potential issues right now, advisors outsourcing services to uh, legitimate service providers is not at the top of the list to me. And w with regulation no. like this, <laughs> I ask the question that you always ask, Dave, which is what problem is this trying to solve? And I, I guess I don't yeah. really see it. It's full employment for compliance officers. It so disproportionately hurts a small shop, right? Like if you're creative planning or Carson or Ritholtz or somebody like that, you already have a compliance officer. This is just adding X number of hours to your life a year. And if you're a service provider to, you know, creative planning or something like that, it's adding a lot of extra hours to you because you're going to make sure that it's very easy for everybody to comply. So now all of a sudden, if you're a, a model provider or Ryan or somebody like that, you are now in the business of providing these reports that are very, you know, clearly in the benefit of the advisor to say, yes, I did my due diligence because here's my due diligence report. It's almost entirely a waste of time and energy. I, I think this is one of the silliest pieces of rulemaking out there I've seen. I get where it came from. It seems like a thing people should be concerned about. But to your point, Nate, there's so many checks and balances on this stuff already between the fiduciary obligation of an advisor and FINRA paying an awful lot of attention to how stuff gets bought and sold. I feel like we're pretty well covered here. Yeah. And again, I do want to emphasize the point that you've made several times here, which is that it's pretty clear this would impact smaller advisors much more just because 100%. larger advisors, they build a lot of what they need in-house. So, you know, this is going to disproportionately impact smaller, even hey, mid-sized you know, RIAs. The outsourcer that wins here is an outsourced compliance department. I know there's several right. firms out there that do that work. Those folks are going to bank. That's my next business venture. <laughs> Sorry to outsource <laughs> compliance. All right, let's get to this uh, rule the SEC actually voted to adopt last week, which I think this one is much more straightforward, though I'll be interested <laughs> so in hearing your take. So this rule will require mutual funds and ETFs to, again, let me read this, quote, transmit concise and visually engaging shareholder reports and to promote transparent and balanced presentations of fees and expenses in investment company advertisement. So I'll just hand this to you. What's the intention of this rule and what's the potential impact? So this is one of those things where if you actually wade through and just read the rulemaking part, not all the narrative, it actually makes a lot of sense. Really what this is about is changing how the summary prospectus presents fee information. And so there's a lot of little tweaks in there about like, well, you don't have to put the top 10 on the first page anymore. You can actually put that on a regulatory prospectus, et cetera. Um, there's a lot of discussion around where you need narrative. So for instance, I'll pick one example. One of the things that can be confusing when you're looking at a fund is breakpoints, right? Some funds say, hey, when we get to 500 million in assets, we'll drop our expense, you know, our, our management fee or our unitary fee 
by 10 basis points, et cetera. It can be very difficult to actually parse that from a perspective to know what might happen to your expenses. Now they're saying, okay, well, you got to get that up front. You have to have a narrative around your breakpoints in plain English to explain it. Same thing with turnover and implied transaction costs. Now at the front of your summary prospectus, you have to say, hey, here's our fund turnover of the trailing 12 months. This is the implied transaction cost or slippage based on that turnover. This is what it would mean to you as a percentage of your assets in, over the course of a year, i.e. the performance hit. Those all strike me as great ideas. I have no problem with any of that. Um, there's a bunch of stuff about compensation to brokers being disclosed better. Um, there's some tweaks to how index-based products are benchmarked. They had proposed that they were going to make people uh, benchmark to both their target index and a third-party benchmark index, i.e., you know, whatever index you think you're tracking plus the S&P 500. They tweaked that a little bit. It's all pretty minor. It's all designed to bring all of these cost impacts way further forward, literally further into the front of these documents. So that at they And they go to the point of saying, after the cover page, when you turn left, the next thing you see has to be a table, and this is what has to be on it. I'm a fan of standardizing these things. I feel like it, nobody reads prospectuses partly because they're very hard to read. So cleaning up the summary prospectus, I think, is a good idea. I don't really have any issues with this. Okay, well, let me ask you this then. Similar to what we just discussed with the proposed rule for uh, outsourcing by advisors, anytime I see something like this, uh, and by the way, I think everyone knows I'm a huge fan of transparency around fees and performance and those sorts of things. But doesn't this favor larger issuers? Like, I just think about smaller upstart issuers that have to contend with more regulation and, you know, getting well, this stuff. Does, does that concern you at all? No, like, in the, so most of the time I'm right there with you, Nate. Like, I mean, that's my knee-jerk reaction is, like, every time there's more regulation, it is a tax on the, on the little guy. I mean, that is just sort of true. In this case, what we're really doing is just changing how to do something you're already doing, right? It's mm -hmm. literally about this has to go from page seven to page two. And if you've got a, you know, a fund series with 30 funds, you now have to present each fund individually. You can't get away with like, here is my table of 37 funds, and you have to go find the one that's yours to see whether or not it charged you an extra half percent, right? So there are already things that are slightly confusing in how prospectuses are done. I see this as mostly a cleanup. Yes, obviously, when you refile a prospectus, now your lawyers are going to have to spend a little more time making sure that they've complied with this new rule. But importantly, there's not a lot of new here. It's just different. And I think it's different in a way that's positive for end investors. And also, frankly, positive towards all of us that then consume masses of these things. Remember, there's still a whole cottage industry of people who are machine reading SEC prospectus filings. This standardizes things. It makes it easier. Well, and we'll move on here. But I think a good example of that is, you know, part of this is just making sure that your fee and expense presentations and, and sales ads are consistent with a prospectus fee table. And yep. I think one of the things that they're targeting there are, for instance, zero fee funds, where you have a fund that's marketed as zero fee, but maybe it's a fund of funds, there's underlying expenses right on the funds that are held, just making all of that much more transparent and easily digestible for the end investor. Uh, again, I think we'd both agree that's a uh, that's a positive step. Um, okay, yep. let's move on here. And look, I think we, we both know that larger fund companies are wielding a lot more power in corporate boardrooms uh, as we've seen this, this rise of passive over the past decade plus. And 
they vote the underlying shares held by their funds. So I'm sure you recall Vanguard founder Jack Bogle. He raised this as one of his biggest concerns just before he passed away. And so there was some pretty big news, I thought, a few weeks ago, which was Charles Schwab announcing that they were piloting a new polling solution where they would uh, survey fund shareholders to learn about their uh, preferences regarding key proxy issues. And the idea here is obviously to try to put some power back into the hands of shareholders, right? There's this narrative that the large yep. asset managers, they have all this power. Let's let's put some of that back into the hands of shareholders, allow them to have a say in the proxy voting process. I'm really curious because this is an issue you and I have talked about over the years. I mean, I, going back several years, what did you think about this? And maybe you can offer a little context as well for listeners who just aren't as familiar with the uh, proxy voting process. Yeah, sure. So, um let, let me let me go in reverse order. Let me give you an opinion here about what they're doing and then tell you why I think it's important. My opinion is this is great. It's a great first step. Um, in fact, I think you can go back to articles I wrote five years ago saying fund companies should survey their investors if they want to include their opinions about things like ESG. So I'm glad that somebody has finally done it. Uh, it seems like baby steps. There's not really a clear path to me that suggests they know that, like, I own X amount of a fund and therefore they'll take my vote into consideration differently. Um, it does seem to be kind of uh, anybody who has the link can go fill out this 13 question or 10 question questionnaire about your opinions about uh, labor practices or tobacco or whatever it is. Um, so I could quibble about that. It's a great first step in the right direction towards actually understanding what your shareholder base wants to do with the stewardship of those funds or those those securities that they own. So put that aside. I think it's generally great. I think we'll see more folks follow this. Um, the context here, and I'm going to be going off on this quite a bit at exchange in February, um, but really we're in this weird zone where all of a sudden people actually care about stewardship. And I think we could both agree this is not a topic that has been cocktail party conversation for decades. <laughs> this is a fairly new thing that anybody gives a you-know-what about who's voting their Exxon shares inside the S&P 500 fund they own in their retirement plan. All of a sudden, people seem to care. I actually think that this is a, a natural reaction to sort of the perceived zeitgeist in the developed world that corporate power seems to be mattering more than at any time any of us can remember. Um, I think you can look back to the Dutch East India Company or the Rockefellers or Standard Oil or whatever and find other examples. But we do seem to be in this very strange window of super high corporate power. What I mean by that is just look at what Elon Musk gets away with in terms of uh, what he's doing at Twitter right now. You know, reports are today he took 50 engineers from Tesla over to Twitter, a private company that has nothing to do with Tesla. But nobody cares. Nobody's filing a, you know, a, a, a lawsuit against him yet. Um, we hang on the every word of major CEOs. This is not normal. This is actually, it feels anomalous to me. So this push towards, hey, all of a sudden, who runs companies really matters, I think is very cultural, and I don't think it's going anywhere. And I think it's part of what's behind ESG uh, and very much behind what's the, in, in the anti-ESG or the anti-woke funds. So um, that's the context. I think we're going to hear more and more about this. We have huge regulatory hurdles, hurdles um, to actually letting shareholders vote through their funds. Uh, but I think those are going to get knocked down over the next couple of years. And I think the move from Schwab here is a little bit of a canary in the coal mine. Yeah, I think this is exactly what you and I talked about, I think, last time you were on the podcast, which is that uh, a lot of this has just become so highly politicized. And that's been the environment we've been in for the past decade plus. 
You look at ESG uh, mandates in corporate boardrooms. I think there's a subset of uh, investors or just people in general who think those are very politically charged. And that's why we're seeing this. Now, I think what Schwab is doing to, to, to what I said earlier, this sort of democratizes the process, right? It's trying to give everybody a voice here. And maybe if you do that, you can pull out some of the, the political venom. Um, and just, by the way, going back, you may have seen this. I, I tweeted this out last week, and you alluded to this. But I actually received one of these questionnaires from Schwab, <clears throat> excuse me, asking for my preferences. And basically what it was, it's a one-pager. It was a glossy brochure that had a QR code on it. And what you do is you scan that code, it takes you to a website with, I, I believe it was 13 questions on different topics. Uh, and, and honestly, those questions were a little odd, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm being honest. It was like a, a behavioral psychology profile test or something. <laughs> uh, but the main thing that uh, stuck out to me besides the questions was that uh, you, anyone who had the QR code could access uh, the yeah. survey. So, so that could be a little bit of an issue. And then I thought uh, Morningstar's Ben Johnson raised a good point, which he just said, of course, people who care more about this stuff are more likely to answer these questions. So you might get some bias in the results. But, but, but no, here's go ahead. the thing. I actually, I think that's a good thing, right? So like, this is the thing, the pushback we always get about ESG and voting and stewardship is nobody cares. And yeah. that's a totally legitimate response, because I cannot tell you how many uh, shareholder resolutions I have voted on in the last four or five years, because the answer is zero, right? Like, it's not, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the individual shareholder votes. I also don't own individual equities. I own funds, like most people in the planet. So the challenge here is how do you, how do you incorporate those ideas in a way that represents the fervor of your actual investor base? And if what actually happens here is the only people who click on that QR code are people who are super pro, I'm going to just make stuff up, super pro anti-tobacco, right? Like anti-tobacco is what they care about. And so all of the votes come in anti-tobacco and nobody out there who is like anti-woke, whatever, even bothers to return the thing saying, no, I don't care whether they're a tobacco company. I want to make total return. If nobody answers that way, well, guess what? You have effectively hold the fervor of your investor base. So I think that's actually, that's not a bug. That's a feature. If people don't care, don't vote. If you do care on any side of these issues, do vote. I think that's pretty straightforward. It's a good point. So in a piece written by uh, Jeff Benjamin for Investment News last week, which I think you were in, uh, he interviewed Strives Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, who obviously has some strong opinions on this. But Vivek said, there's a reason we don't do elections of any kind through surveys, which, which is a good point. But to your point, you have an opportunity to do the survey, just like you have an opportunity to show up at the voting booth. Uh, so yeah, you have yeah. a so you have an opportunity to have your voice heard. Yeah, I and I'm definitely not one of these people who thinks because we're worried about apathy we shouldn't ask a question. Uh, I think if we're worried about apathy and we ask questions and we prove apathy is there, that is information, and I think that's valuable information. Yeah. Long story short, I think you and I both agree this is a a very good first step, and it's only going to improve from here. Um, yeah, and and I honestly think this is something advisors should be paying attention to because I think this stewardship issue which is really about corporate power, not about the environment or diversity or anything like that. Corporate power is going to become an issue, particularly for wealthy clients. And so I think it's something advisors should pay attention to. Dave, just uh, two minutes left here. As usual, I didn't leave us enough time. Uh, as you heard at the top, I'll be discussing non or semi-transparent ETFs with uh, Nick Elward of Natixis later. And it's funny. So there was this Ignites piece last week, which I know you were quoted in as well. You're, you're everywhere. But I actually made some comments <laughs> here. And I got to tell you, man, I heard from 
quite a few people uh, in the industry on this. I said non-transparent ETFs are basically dead in the water. And that did not go over very well with some people. <laughs> but look, well, everyone knows, it, I, yeah, I've been bearish on this for a while, right? What's your take just on the, the current state of non-transparent ETFs overall? So, so in general, I would say this is a horses for courses thing. And what I mean by that's an old man saying. But what I mean by that is like, look, there are some strategies that are, for some people are going to be better in the active non-transparent structure. It's not like there's nothing happening. DUHP from Dimensional, it's their high-profit fund, has a billion dollars in flows into an active non-transparent fund this year, about $3.5 in flows so far into the 80 funds that are using those types of structures. They're all doing what they say on the tin. It's, the structures are all working great. There's reasonable competition between those structures. You've got Blue Tractor out there with Shielded Alpha. You've got the Presidian guys with their version of it. I mean, there's plenty of competition for folks to find the structure that works for their strategy. Meanwhile, the Active Transparent guys have pulled in $53 billion in flows and are sitting at something like $300 billion in assets, and there's 700 of the darn things. So it's clear that the market has voted and said transparent works for most purposes, but I don't think the A&T stuff shouldn't exist. I just think it's going to be narrow use case. Okay, but you do think it has a viable path moving forward? you expect the structure to be around for a while? I know there's like five yeah, structures, but one of the structures at least. Yeah, I, I mean, sure, some of these folks may call it a day because they don't manage to get any traction. But then again, these are largely technology licensors, right? And that's a relatively high-margin business once you've done all of that patent development work and once you put all those connections in place. I don't think any of these guys are about to close. Um, and I think that they'll continue to be there as more and more traditional active managers want to show up in the ETF space. They're going to be those portfolio managers that want an ant structure. They're going to find it. Well, next time the media calls, I'm uh, paring down my, my comments. I'm going more plain vanilla so my uh, email <laughs> inbox doesn't fill up. Dave, always so much fun. Uh, appreciate the time this week. Thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, Nate. See you next time. That was Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Vetify. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Alexandra Wilson-Elizondo, head of multi-asset funds and models portfolio management at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, who's obviously one of the world's leading asset managers, uh, currently overseeing more than $2 trillion in assets under supervision worldwide. And on the ETF side here in the U.S., they currently offer 31 ETFs with about $26 billion in assets. And Alexandra is now on the line with me from New York. 
Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so the focus of our conversation this week is on model portfolios. And there's a lot I want to get into on this, but let's start high level with some background. I'd love to have you just give us a quick overview of Goldman Sachs asset management models portfolio business overall, uh, perhaps how big it is, maybe a little history here. And then I'd certainly love to hear more about your career path as well. Absolutely. So I will just start a little bit with um, my own background. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm responsible for retail investing globally within our multi-asset solutions team. And prior to joining Goldman Sachs, I spent the earlier part of my career at Vanguard. Um, and this was just as the retail revolution was taking place, and ETFs and indexing were really in their earlier days. I later then moved on to run active and income portfolios, and now at Goldman, I'm focused on building and delivering multi-asset active allocation investment solutions for our clients. Um, and then just to answer your question and set the stage a little bit, um, our multi-asset solutions team has about $14 billion in model assets under supervision, and our track record dates back about 18 years with our proprietary models having launched about six years ago. And what I think really differentiates us is that we use the same in exact investment chassis that we do for our institutional OCIO business, um, which is actually one of the largest globally, uh, where we're servicing some of the world's largest corporates. And what we're doing is we're bringing that same exact investment expertise to retail through this model's business. Okay, so the model portfolio business in general, and I would say uh, ETF models in particular, it's seen pretty remarkable growth in recent years. So I saw uh, Broadridge noted that assets and models have doubled over the past five years and are expected to hit $10 trillion by 2025, which is a number that I think may surprise some people. And so I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think have been some of the key drivers behind that? And, and what could keep that growth trend intact moving forward? Yeah, to your point, this is an incredible growing and strategic business for us, and that's because we do believe in this, this growth. So why do we believe that the growth is there? Uh, fundamentally, just markets and the instruments to access them have grown so much in complexity and size, especially post-COVID. And so advisors and asset managers are looking to partner with experienced investors and allocators so they can focus on other value-added initiatives like estate planning and working with their clients to better understand their needs. So it's really um, an, a tremendous thing to help advisors with their overall business practice. Yeah, talk more about that, because as I think about the specific benefits to uh, to advisors and, and, and other asset allocators, and ultimately their clients, right? I mean, that's the point here, delivering value to end clients. What do you view as some of the primary benefits to what I'll call outsourcing the portfolio management function to someone like Goldman Sachs Asset Management? So in a nutshell, why use model portfolios? Um, I think quite simply stated, it's time. So embracing models gives advisors the ability to partner with us. Um, they get to utilize our investment research, our portfolio construction, rebalancing, trading, you name it. Um, and on top of that, the fund due diligence. So it allows them to free up time to be better spent with their clients on things like wealth and financial planning, or even you know addressing some of the immediate concerns like what's going on in the market, because there's a lot of anxiety right now. 
Okay, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but for advisors who are unfamiliar with how all of this works uh, tactically, can you explain how advisors actually access the models and how portfolio changes are made? Like, what does that process actually look like from an advisor's perspective? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So our models can be accessed on turnkey asset management platforms, so otherwise known as TAMPs the wirehouses and robo-advisors. Um, every model provider is slightly different. Um, so we typically trade our portfolios anywhere from four to six times a year. And we think that that allows us to be very strategic, but also address um, longer, you know, some of the dynamics that are taking place in markets that would change your ultimate longer-term strategic asset allocation. And when we do that, we communicate with our clients via model alerts, um, and then in times when we're not actually trading, uh, we'll do some routine desk notes. And this allows us to really give uh, advisors and ultimately their clients direct access to our PM team. Okay. And one other question on the uh, model portfolio process, and then I, I do want to talk markets. So I know one concern for some advisors is around the actual funds used in models. And the way that I would explain this is, some advisors are concerned that model portfolios are being uh, loaded up with proprietary funds from whoever the provider is offering the portfolios. And actually, this is an area the uh, SEC is looking into on the regulatory side. Uh, I, I think their concern is that there are some inherent conflicts of interest here where model portfolio providers obviously have a vested interest to use their own products within portfolios. Are you able to speak to this at all? Because I do know this is a consideration for advisors. Yeah, no, I, I think absolutely. So a couple of things I would say here is um, within the multi-asset solutions team, we take the time to learn about our ETF offerings and select the ones that really align with our views. And if we do not have the specific exposure through our product lineup that we're looking for, or it's not the right fit for the overall portfolio complexion, we're not afraid to use external ETFs. So. Um, I think that that's one thing to take into consideration there. But also, we have a regular dialogue with our product development team to discuss feedback. Um, and most importantly, we have our own due diligence team so that there are many eyes on the models and the underlying ETFs themselves. Um, you know, throughout our time here, we've, you know, hired and fired our own portfolio management teams throughout the broader organization and externally. So we're really focused on within the multi-asset team, just delivering the best portfolios to our clients. And in this context, this is, you know, clients are looking for a Goldman Sachs proprietary model portfolio, but we do offer other solutions as well. Okay, so let's transition here and get to what I know everyone wants to hear about, which is the uh, actual investments, or at least the investment approach within the portfolios. What's currently top of mind for you and your team right now, and how are you allocating uh, accordingly? Because clearly there is no shortage of considerations for uh, investors. There's a lot going on right now. Yeah, it's, de uh, it's definitely not been a dull year, to say the least. Um, so we are cautious on risk assets. We believe that we're in the late cycle environment and that it's highly improbable to avoid recession in the U.S. Um, but we do see it being shallow and shortish uh, from the middle of next year moving forward. And that's simply just because of the strength of um, the jobs market within the U.S. Now, that being said, we have a preference for U.S. risk assets over international developed and generic EM. 
And we think Europe is in a lot more difficult position, um, just given that their central bank is hiking into what we believe is already a recession there with very high levels of inflation. So they're in a really a rock and a hard place. Um, and then as it relates to emerging markets, which has been very top of mind for a lot of investors, um, and some, you know, some have even said that this is a lost decade for EM, equities in particular, um, but just because there's a very large allocation to China and traditional indices. We, we don't think that that's the case and that there's going to be a lot of attractive opportunities in emerging markets, but that it deserves a real nuanced approach um, rather, you know, rather than just a set it and forget it. So, you know, we're very focused on fundamental active analysis and we're using, just to talk a little bit about the implementation portfolios, um, we've used our own proprietary ETFs like the GS Access Emerging Market USD Bond ETF, which t- is the ticker GEMD. Um, that's our EM debt fund. And while this fund is passive, its index is constructed using a systematic and transparent process to identify an investable universe that eliminates some of the subset of issuers with deteriorating fundamentals hopefully with the potential to offer improved exposure to dollar-denominated emerging market bonds. So we think that there's a lot of opportunities to play offense while playing defense at the same time in this market. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about how you view U.S. versus uh, the international equity allocation right now? So you mentioned the the preference for U.S. risk assets overall, but I've got to tell you, I mean, this is a topic I hear a lot about from advisors where there, there are advisors who are simply throwing in the towel altogether on international. I would say both developed and emerging markets. It's just underperformed for so long. And then you look now, we have a, a strong U.S. dollar. Uh, the, the global economy is slowing down. Demographics don't look so good in certain areas. Uh, just talk a little bit more about how you're viewing that international equity allocation overall. Yeah, I think from our perspective, there's tremendous value in the diversification that it provides to an overall portfolio. Um, That being said, you have to take a more active and dynamic approach to some of these markets. Um, You know, some of the things that we were looking at at the beginning of the year is that these markets tended to look more attractive in terms of valuation. Now, things can be cheap for a reason. So it's really important to have a deep research team uh, behind some of these asset allocation decisions. And I think that that's one of the other tremendous benefits from um, asking someone like Goldman Sachs to do your model portfolios or ask, uh, I'm sorry, your asset allocation. Um, but in terms of emerging markets, I think that there are some, some segments of different economies that are going to do uh, better than others. In some cases, the countries in Latin America have been hiking well before our own central bank. And so they're later on in that stage of, of hiking. So we do see that there's attractive opportunities, but this isn't a blanketed, you know, go out and just buy broader broader indexes. We have to be very conscious about sizing um, and then the timing and valuations of these segments of the market. What about on the fixed income side of the portfolio? So as you know, we're currently in the midst of the uh, worst year ever for broad bonds. Uh, obviously, longer duration holdings have been absolutely bludgeoned this year. How are you approaching fixed income where we've had this large drawdown, but rates have come up? Uh, there, there's actually income out there to be had now by investors. J- just talk about the uh, fixed income allocation. Yeah. So to your point, um, we are, from where we started the year, in a considerably better place 
And we've witnessed a very steep and aggressive rate hiking cycle. Um, And while we don't exactly know where we're going to end up, uh, just as the path of inflation, it's proven to be uh, very sticky and systematically underestimated, to be honest with you. Um, But we do know we're closer to the end than the beginning. And the U.S. is much further along than most of the world. So we're starting to purchase fixed income, especially in the front end, as some of the break-even dynamics, um, to your point, so the income that you're receiving are getting more interesting. And we think that we should see a a moderate recession in 23, as I mentioned earlier. And so interest rate products will reclaim some of their risk parity qualities. And in the front end of the yield curve, there are some attractive yields with little duration from our perspective. So we've utilized our own proprietary ETF, the Goldman Sachs Access Treasury Zero to One Year ETF, which is ticker GBIL, to access that market. Any thoughts on the corporate credit side? So, you know, if you look at credit spreads, obviously they've come up recently or at least over the past several months. Any thoughts on allocating to a corporate credit? So corporate credit is very near and dear to my heart, as I used to um, (laughs) be the deputy head of global credit in my my past life. I think from um, the perspective of the fact that there's, you know, convexity embedded in credit, we're more cautious there. Just meaning that, um, you know, as you go into the late stages of the cycle, there's more potentials for for material losses with defaults in corporate credit. That said, we're in a a very different regime in corporate credit than we were prior to, to COVID starting because a lot of corporate America spent the better part of post-COVID addressing their balance sheets and terming out debt um, and and addressing overall leverage and protecting some some cash in in those instances. So we do think that there's opportunity. It does offer attractive carry, but we do think it's, again, something that needs to be actively managed and looked at because there are going to be some sectors or segment of the market that experience more stress than others, uh, given some of the economic downturn that we're expecting. Just a couple of minutes left here before I let you go. Since we're talking portfolio management, I thought it was important to touch on taxes. And I think a timely topic for advisors right now is tax loss harvesting, right? It's always timely, but I think particularly this year with the uh, aforementioned returns from bonds and, of course, stocks have been in a bear market. Can you touch on taxes from a model portfolio management perspective? Yes. So as you mentioned, a lot of advisors think about their individual clients' tax needs throughout the year, but we also do our best to be very tax aware. So we strive to not create unnecessary capital gains. We spend a lot of time on our positions um, and try to make sure we're managing and balancing gains and losses. We actually have a separate working group established to address some of those considerations within the model portfolio business. Um, But similarly, this line of thinking can sometimes play into our investment decisions. And as we think about trade execution, we want to take advantage of forced tax selling by others to create favorable entry points for our portfolios. Um, So there's, you know, two sides of that coin. But lastly, our ETFs seek to manage taxable gains in the portfolios as efficiently as possible. Um, And we have the opportunity for greater tax efficiency in our model portfolios as a result. Well, Alexandra, so great to uh, connect this week. Fantastic insight on a topic that I just always find intriguing. So uh, thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Alexandra wilson Elizondo, head of multi-asset funds and models portfolio management at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. 
Hey folks, Dave Nodding from Vetify here. You know, as a financial futurist, I'm supposed to be looking ahead. And what I'm looking ahead to is the second annual exchange ETF conference. It's right around the corner. We'll be back in Miami Beach, Florida, February 5th through February 8th. It's going to be the largest gathering of financial advisors in the whole community. We're hard at work making sure it's going to be an experience you're not going to forget with incredible content, great networking opportunities, and most importantly, a chance to really connect with a community of advisors as real people. I mean, after all, this is supposed to be about you. We had a great first year in 2022. We're super excited to show you how we're taking this whole idea of an event to the next level next year in 2023. We want to hang out with ETF Prime listeners in particular. So go ahead and head to exchangeetf.com and you can use the code PRIME to get a discounted advisor ticket. And that's good until the end of the year. So we hope you'll join us. Thanks. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Nick Elward, head of institutional product and ETFs at Natixis Investment Managers, who currently offers four ETFs, about $60 million in assets. Now, of course, Natixis is one of the world's largest investment managers overall, so well over a trillion dollars in assets. And at least from my perspective, I think they're perhaps best known for their multi-affiliate approach. So partnering with some of the most respected names and brands on the investment management side. And Nick is now joining me from Boston. Nick, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I just mentioned that multi-affiliate approach. I I actually think that's a good starting point before we get into the ETF side of things. Uh, Do you want to expand on that a little bit and uh, perhaps just give us the overall Natixis investment philosophy? Absolutely, for sure. Again, thank you very much for having me, uh, both to you and also to your listeners. Natixis Investment Managers is a multi-affiliate model. So we have uh, eight U.S. affiliates that are under our fold and 12 international affiliates. We're based in Paris, outside the U.S., and based in Boston, within the U.S. And uh, our goal is really to acquire these affiliates that are specialists and expert in different asset classes, bring them under one fold, and then distribute those products, those services, throughout all U.S. and non-U.S. markets. We run about $1.1 trillion in assets, which makes us about the 15th or 16th global asset manager uh, in the world. And give listeners an idea on some of the affiliates themselves, because I, I thought there were some pretty big names here. Right, for sure. Yeah, they range from Luma Sales, and Luma Sales is based in Boston. And uh, they're one of the larger fixed income managers uh, throughout the world. But they also have equity investing as well and alternatives. Another affiliate is Harris Associates, which is based in Chicago. And they run primarily equity, both U.S. and international equity. And their retail brand that more of your uh, listeners might be aware of is the Oakmark Funds. So that's their brand for mutual funds and ETFs. And Nick, we'll get into some of the specific ETFs themselves, but just give us some background on the ETF business overall, like in terms of why you enter the market and how you view this particular channel. Right, absolutely. Well, for us, it all comes down to understanding what our financial advisors and end investors are interested in. And as we went out on a listening series about six years ago now, we were hearing uh, loud and clear that there was an interest in choice 
there was an interest in the ETF vehicle type for its tax efficiency and its intraday tradability. So with that being what we heard, we, uh, we being mostly an active management shop, were interested in exploring the ETF market, both with active transparent ETFs and active semi-transparent ETFs. Okay, so that's the perfect segue. So the four ETFs you currently offer, these are all actively managed. To your point, three of these are using the semi-transparent structure, uh, which I definitely want to talk more about that. And all are leveraging the uh, the multi-affiliate approach we, we noted earlier. So let me go through these. There's the Natixis U.S. Equity Opportunities ETF, ticker EQOP. The Natixis Vaughn Nelson Midcap ETF, ticker VNMC. The Vaughn Nelson Select ETF, VNSE. And then the uh, Natixis Loomis Sales Short Duration Income ETF, ticker LSST. Do you want to briefly highlight one or two of these or, or perhaps just generally comment on the lineup overall? Yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you. Yeah, so um, we have a lineup of four uh, active ETFs that's complemented by over 50 mutual funds. So in the 40-act space, obviously, we're, we're quite large with those different selections. With the ETFs, we have three equity products, the ones that you mentioned from Vaughn Nelson and also EQOP. And we have the one fixed income product managed by Loomis Sales. Perhaps I'll just highlight two of the four and uh, maybe just for ease, one fixed income and one equity. Please, so yeah. on the fixed income side, again, as you said, the ticker is LSST. That's a short duration fixed income ETF we launched just under five years ago, managed by a team of uh, professionals that have been running money for 25 years in this discipline. Before we brought the product out, as an ETF almost five years ago, they had been running money for institutional investors in the same style for 20 years. So we were satisfied with their performance on the institutional side. We were just entering the ETF business to support our retail investors and elected to bring this product to market for retail investors. And uh, as of uh, the last monthly close, which uh, 11-1 is today's date, so we don't have the October data yet, but as of the September data, it's a five-star, Morningstar-rated product. Hmm. And then what about on the equity side? Yeah, on the equity side, I'd highlight VNSE, the Natixis Vaughn Nelson Select ETF. And that's an ETF that is um, it's a concentrated approach. It's uh, focused on beating the S&P 500, typically has between 20 and 30 stocks in the portfolio. And the thing I like about this product, managed by Chris Wallace in combination with Scott Weber, uh, at Vaughn Nelson, which is based in Houston, is um, that if you look at the performance over its two-plus-year track record, it it was right last year in a time when it was a risk-on market, and it's been right so far this year, which has been mostly, except for last month, a risk-off market. And it has outstanding performance since its inception about two years ago. So those are probably the two that I would highlight. Nick, let's talk more about the semi-transparent wrapper. And for full disclosure, I've been uh, bearish on this structure overall, really for two main reasons. So number one, I do think investors value the uh, daily transparency of the traditional ETF wrapper. And then number two, again, just from my perspective, I have not seen enough evidence that actually cloaking holdings helps performance. And in fact, there are plenty of examples of managers who have generated outperformance for at least periods of time using the traditional ETF wrapper. So give me the uh, the, the counter arguments here. Okay, sure. <laughs> and uh, and uh, 
hopefully I can say, you know, great minds can agree to disagree. But <laughs> nonetheless, uh, we're one of the early entrants in the active semi-transparent ETF space. We partnered up with the New York Stock Exchange and elected to use their model for, as you say, cloaking the uh, holdings on a daily basis. Uh, our goal was to allow more of our portfolio managers who had concerns about uh, maybe predatory investors front-running or free-riding their trades. So with that concern, they would only enter the ETF market if we could use active semi-transparent uh, ETFs. So that was the basis for us wanting to do it. And with respect to what we think active semis can do, it's all about providing alpha, which is what active managers all are intending to do, of course, greater tax efficiency than some other vehicle types, and then the intraday tradability, which seems to be something that a lot of investors over the last five, ten years have been valuing. So your points were around transparency. Investors want that. Uh, you were asking about the cloaking, whether or not that actually helps performance. On the transparency, I'd probably go back to the fact that there's about $12 trillion, um, USD in actively managed mutual funds in the U.S., and there isn't daily transparency on that. Normally, it's monthly or quarterly. And investors in those active mutual funds are seeking performance against an index, better performance, and better performance against peers. So I think if they're okay giving up that daily transparency, I think like-minded investors in ETFs might think the same way. And then in, in terms of cloaking, uh, I'm not saying that the active semi-transparent ETF would uh, improve performance, but what it should do is allow for the same kind of stock picking prowess that's done in a more um, disguised or cloaked way to get into the ETF vehicle type, which should provide better tax efficiency uh, for investors. So that's what I'd say. And in the end, we're just all about providing choice to investors. If they want our asset management skill in a mutual fund or an SMA or an ETF, we want to provide that. If we can build a product that's transparent as an ETF, we'll do that. If the portfolio management team needs the cloaking, as you say, we'll do that. So uh, that's how I'd respond to that. No, and I think that's a good point. Sometimes we tend to get caught up in the uh, minutiae. You know, we're just too close to the industry. But I guess l let me ask you this, Nick. So why do you think traction has been slow overall with that semi-transparent wrapper? So last week, you may have seen this, Ignites reported that According to Morningstar, semi-transparent ETFs only had about $4.5 billion in assets, which is really a small sliver of the active ETF market, which itself is still pretty small. It's growing significantly. We can talk right. about that, but still small overall. And nearly half of that $4.5 billion was in one ETF. So, so right. why do you think these have been slow to gain traction? Yeah, so uh, definitely a great question. And as, as I think about how a nascent business grows, that definitely isn't overnight. I can think back to when the first ETF launched and then the first active transparent ETF launched. And it wasn't a bonanza of new assets on day one or year one or year two. It was a, a slow build as those products gained acceptance. And also, really importantly, those products gained platform placement. Right now, a lot of the active uh, semi-transparent ETFs are not available as broadly as say, the passive ETFs or as active mutual funds are. So without a lot of placement on some of these larger wirehouse and independent platforms, um, 
you're not going to have a lot of sales because you're not exposing yourself to as many financial advisors who could actually utilize those products. So as these active semi-transparent ETFs get that placement on more and more platforms, I think naturally if those active semis provide the alpha, the tax efficiency, and um, operational success in terms of how they're run, they will gather assets. The bottom line for us is we want to build vehicle types that do good things for investors. And we believe that the way that we built these active semis, in the long run, they're going to be valued by investors, valued by platforms. And um, we're, we're really happy in looking out to the future in this way. It's a fantastic point on the access. Uh, I know that's been an issue over the past couple of years. What changes that? Is it just, uh, is it assets into the products? Is it education by the gatekeepers at these platforms? Uh, is it investor? I, I just, what what opens up that, uh, that gate? Right, yep. Uh, I think their first point about assets is one, a lot of the gatekeepers at some of the larger firms <clears throat> excuse me, have asset requirements. So until certain ETFs or the ETFs, the active semis, get to a certain level of assets, they won't be added to those platforms. That's one. And two, it is a relatively new structure. We are two years and uh, I think six months into the active semi-transparent ETF launches. So more data is now available, but as the research groups at these platforms get more comfortable, um, my hope is that they'll be adding more of these products to those platforms. Yeah, and I'll just add to all of this, again, whether we're talking uh, the transparent ETF wrapper, the semi-transparent ETF wrapper, the one thing we know for sure is that the active ETF space itself uh, continues to expand. So Morningstar's Ben Johnson had some great stats last week that there have been more active than passive ETF launches this year. That's been the case the past two years. And then, as I'm sure you're aware, if you look at uh, flows, the money is going into uh, active ETFs at an accelerating rate. And ETF assets, Indeed. if you look at active ETF assets overall, I think they were around like 5%, but the flows into active ETFs are well exceeding that. So that shows that investor demand is there. And, and like I said earlier, I think sometimes probably because we're just too close, or at least I'm too close to the industry, sometimes I get caught up in the minutia. Uh, but the bottom line is, as we know, investors are seeking out active ETFs. Nick, on that note, we just have a couple of minutes left here. I think everyone knows this uh well-trodden narrative of the rise of passive investing. And so because of that, uh, I think active management has taken it on the chin a little bit over the past decade. And look, I've thrown a few shots of my own, if I'm being honest. But give us the bull case for active management moving forward. Because at the end of the day, again, whether we're talking transparent or semi-transparent, or even ETFs versus mutual funds, investors are going to judge funds based on performance. So give us the bull case for active. Yeah, for sure. And I, I don't think it's an either or for active versus passive. I think a lot of investors really use a combination of both active and passive, but specifically around why active could be useful for certain investors in the current market. Uh, it really comes down to the expected volatility. We've seen tremendous volatility this year, last year, and certainly go forward. I presume that we'll see similar volatility. I've seen levels at the VIX that are over 36 at one point this year, which is sizable. And last year, of course, with COVID, it was even uh, even higher. But nonetheless, when you're thinking about your portfolio that you own, whether it be a mutual fund or an ETF, oftentimes you're wondering who is at the helm of this product and how will they navigate, navigate extreme volatility in the market? 
And knowing that you have someone looking after your interests with the product that you own that is caring about every security in your portfolio, making active decisions of whether or not that should be included in your portfolio on a daily basis is something that a lot of people value. Rather than owning a slice of every stock that could have uh, obvious negative sentiment currently, but you own it and you can't get out of it unless you sell the overall product. So I think a lot of people, by their nature, are interested in having that captain uh, at the helm of the ship, guiding them as they go through their investment journey. Well, well said. I think a perfect ending spot for us. Uh, so great to finally have you on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation this week. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. I love the podcast. I'll be, I'll be uh, listening uh, every week. Have a good one. Thank you. That was Nick Elward, Head of Institutional Product and ETFs at Natixis Investment Managers. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShare Sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com slash sustainable. Next week, I'll be joined by Holly Framstead, Director of ETFs at Capital Group. So she's going to discuss their growing ETF lineup. And then Lisa Langley, CEO of Emerge Capital Management, will discuss their new Empower platform, which seeks to support women investment managers. Until then, have a great week, everyone.